Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paul Favor. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Today is Friday, the 7th of October, 2022. Uh, and we're just kind of shifting gears a little bit. I want to go back into uh, one of the areas I like to talk about, and that's irregular warfare. Uh, regular warfare, as you know, uh, encompasses uh, five so-called pillars uh, we have uh, UW, of course, and COIN, FID, uh, counterterrorism, and then stability operations. And the one I want to talk about uh, in that context today, I want us to spend an hour on what was called the Philippine Insurrection, or now it, nowadays it's called the, the Philippine War or the Philippine uh, American War or something like that. Is that right? It's got all kinds of names. Uh- with Tagalog, is it, is it Tagalog? Tagalog. Tagalog, yeah. I'm sorry. Tagalog yep. uh, insurrection. Uh, yep. Lots of different names for this uh, this conflict. And so uh, with a regular warfare, you know, what we're looking at is, uh, it's just complex. Uh, regular warfare is not, you know, traditional warfare. Uh, so you have, um, as we mentioned, those are the five pillars uh, but a regular warfare is defined as a violent struggle among state and non-state actors for legitimacy and influence over the relevant population. And so there's a, uh, you know, you think of traditional war, you're thinking of, you know, this side, there's a forward line of troops, you know, you got your guys on one side, the bad guys on the other, and you're maybe even distinguished by your uniforms. And then, uh, so it's it's more of a, uh, things are more clear. Things are out in the open. Uh, and a regular warfare uh, gets gray. You know, it gets uh, ambiguous and certain. I know we were talking to <laughs> one of our authors not long ago, and he was making the argument, and I think he was successful, that all warfare really today is irregular, or maybe all warfare at all times uh, is actually irregular. Now we like to talk. We like to talk about the regular warfare because that's nice and clean. You know, everybody kind of lines up in their ranks and faces each other off, and you know, behind the lines are kind of sacred. You don't mess back there. It's all the logistics and the civilians and things like that. But really, all warfare is irregular, isn't it, Paul? It is, I guess. Uh, but we but we're focusing on the the, the the nasty, the nasty irregular stuff that's happening behind the scenes. That's really yeah more. Uh, <clears throat> really shaping the battlefield and really a lot of times has determines the outcome. Yeah. And I think uh, my, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, they have, uh, you know, just everyone knows this, you know, war is a continuation of politics by other means by the 40 pound brained uh, Prussian Clausewitz says that, but the idea is uh, how that you execute the foreign policy objectives of the United States. Um, that's where we come in. Right, and one of the ways we do that in a regular warfare context is uh, one of the the uh, 
strategies at the disposal of the United States is counterinsurgency or coin. Uh, and so to add another definition here, uh, you know, definition is the beginning of wisdom, right? Or defining your terms, as Socrates says, it's the beginning of wisdom. So coin is defined as a blend of civilian and military efforts designed to end insurgent violence and facilitate a return to peaceful political processes. So a coin, coin is really a war for legitimacy in the eyes of the affected populace. That's another way of looking at it. Uh, the remember the uh, <clears throat> really what we're going at going after in a regular warfare is legitimacy and influence, and uh, uh, really just to kind of paint the, the picture here as we go in to look at the Philippine insurrection. I'm going to call it the Philippine insurrection. Uh, it's kind of non woke of me to say it like that, but uh, that's how how I learned it, and it was called that forever and ever and ever. I just hate renaming stuff just because somebody got offended or something. So my yeah. my bad. I think that's accurate, Philippine insurrection. Yeah. So I read books on that. Uh, now, what are we talking about here is the context is the Spanish-American War. Uh, now, not, not to go off on a long tangent, but that was 1898-1902. Uh, we were drawn into that conflict uh, because of the sinking of the USS Maine and Havana Harbor uh, in, in 1898. And, uh, you know, whether that was provoked or yeah. we don't, we're still trying to figure that out. It's kind of like the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. You know, did that really happen? I yeah. mean, something happened. We're not exactly sure. But anyway, the main sank. We blamed the Spanish, and then we declared war in Spain. And, uh, you know, they gave us what for also. Uh, but, you know, we kicked our butt. Uh, and a lot of the fighting was really done in Cuba, if those of you who know history, you have Teddy Roosevelt. And Rough Riders. Rough yeah. Riders and all that stuff. And at the and when the dust settled, uh, we owned some other lands. Uh, we owned Guam, uh, the Philippines, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Uh, and immediately uh, at the Treaty of Paris uh, in, in 1902, we decided to go ahead and give Cuba its limited independence uh, as we maintain a presence there. Uh the, we gave, uh, well, Puerto Rico actually became a, a possession, if you will, a sovereign territory of the United States, along with Guam. But then there was a different story in the Philippines, and that's really what this is about. This was uh, uh, the days of high adventure, if you will. This is when uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the assistant uh, secretary of the Navy. Uh, he, you know, he was the, the rough-riding colonel, but now... Uh, at the beginning of this, though, he was the Assistant Tech Secretary of the Navy, and he had other ideas. He had ins uh, aspirations for American uh, empiricism. I think yeah. I'm, I never say that right. Well, imperialism, yeah. Imperialism. Yeah. So the idea is uh, following uh, this treaty, uh, we were given the Philippines, but how that all went, went down, we were really offered to buy the Philippines. Uh, because at the beginning of the war, uh, Roosevelt instructed uh, an admiral to go ahead and take it. Uh, on the on the event that the Spanish uh, attack, then uh, you know provocation of war, then we're just going to go ahead and go. Um, and then so you have um, if you go back in time, there's something else we need to understand is uh, kind of how the Philippines. Uh, has been under colonial domination for a long time, or at least they were. Uh, so something that's really important to this whole 
uh, storyline is uh, how the Spanish were there first. You know, they came there in the 1500s. Uh, they, they conquered it. Uh, much like uh, other places they went to, they imposed their system of government. So um, I think what's important um, here, and I think um, even in Cuba uh, as well, but there was a, um, a revolution, if you would, going on prior to our entering the Spanish-American War. Yeah. As, you know, so the Philippine people themselves are rebelling against Spanish occupation. Yeah, they had, uh, they, they did, uh, they had one of the uh, hated, hateful aspects of the whole colonial uh, system under the Spanish was called uh, the, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, Encomienda. I think that's I, probably, I, I know probably, I just, ba- uh, that's just probably, slaughtered that. That's probably way better yeah. than that. Encomienda uh, system, um, and really it's a, a land system. And so you just have like the, the landed gentry, uh, you have uh, tenant farmers, you know, the peasants, they're going to work the land, uh, but somebody owns the land. And so this is going to lend its uh, hand later on to the things we want to talk about with the hooks and uh, the communist uh, uh, hook uh, rebellion. But uh, basically, the people just wanted the taste. You know, they want to own some of the land they work. Yeah. And so now they have these uh, Spanish overlords, their oppressors, and you have this kind of, uh, you know, you have the Spanish uh, aristocrats, their own stuff, and then you've got the mestizos, and they're the, the mixed people between the Spanish and the Filipinos. And I'm using their words, their terms. And then you just got the, the Filipinos are just treated like, uh, you know, indigenous peasants. And so naturally, uh, you're going to have a rebellion on your hands, treating the people like that. Uh, so there were some uh, underground uh, systems, uh, underground movements. One of them was called the uh, uh, Katupunan. Uh, it was uh, established by a guy named Andreas Bonifacio in 1892. Uh, and the goal of the, the this political system was to just you know expel uh, expel the, the Spaniards and then have independence for themselves. Something that they had not known since the Spanish got there in the, around 1565. And uh, well, these people were rounded up. Uh, the Spanish authorities in Manila, uh, where Catipunan was uh, originated, they rounded them up and they uh, they just executed these guys. Uh, but uh, the movement left a mark, and it actually um, propelled the Filipinos forward in their uh, zeal for independence. And why wouldn't they? I mean, to be free, to live without, uh, to be shackled. And so the uh, the revolution really began in uh, 1896 uh, when the secret society just kind of expanded uh, under their uh, their intellectual founder Jose Rizal, and Rizal. Uh, had one of his uh, uh, chief captains. His name was Emilio Aguinaldo. Uh, and Aguinaldo uh, came from a well-to-do family. Uh, in, uh, and I'm just going to uh, slaughter these names, sorry. Uh, Cavite El Vallejo. Uh, this was uh, north of uh, Manila. Just imagine Philippines has 7,000 islands, basically. Um, and one of the main, the, the largest island is Luzon. So the capital of the Philippines is Manila, and north of that is where this guy's from. Uh, so after Bonifacio was assassinated, Aquinaldo uh, assumed the mantle uh, of this uh, revolutionary movement. So just imagine that, the, uh, the backlash. So more Spanish troops arrive. They put down the rebellion. But the, really, the rebellion that uh, we inherited 
1898 was something that began two years prior. Right. And that's really the, the, the picture I want to. Uh, yeah. So the organ, I mean, so they, they, they had had uh, time to develop networks, um, get organized, um, establish leadership, get principles, all those things that you need uh, to be an effective uh, pain in the butt for the government. Yeah. Um, and we kind of just walk in on this already established sort of network of discontent. Absolutely. Uh, Aquinata also had his cadre, and the, his cadre indoctrinated the people, uh, brought him into the system. And it was a secret society. And so they had, you know, they're, just imagine their secret symbols and, uh, you know, communications they used under the, the noses of the Spanish that didn't know what was really going on. Uh, so anyway, that's going on. Uh, they get to the point where there's a series of uh, amnesty that happens. And it's kind of a, they try to uh, kind of buy over the insurgents uh, and, and just kind of, hey, we'll pay you just to stop. And so that's basically what they do to Equin, uh, Aquinaldo. And I hope I'm not slaughtering his name. Uh, but Aquinaldo is sent to Hong Kong and he's given uh, a huge sum of money, uh, you know, 400000 dollars equivalent at the time so a huge sum of money in which he readily uses instead of on himself uh he uses on the insurgency and building he's trying to buy arms uh he's trying to get more influence okay so just fast forward a little bit you got hong kong you're on the verge of the spanish-american war which started in 1898 uh, hong kong you've got uh, uh commodore dewey who's in hong kong at the time so Commodore Dury is the, uh, the, uh, the Navy's Pacific Fleet. It's all anchored right there. Uh, who does he meet? He meets Aguinaldo. Uh, they, they learn uh, his plight uh, as situation, as situation develops. Uh, then you have a telegram from uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who has... Uh, as we learn from history, sent this telegram while his boss, the real secretary of the Navy, was out. And to the, to the extent, uh, the, uh, basically the telegraph says, in the event of a war, uh, or the squadron uh, to, to move, um, and your duty will be to, to move the squadron to, to Spanish-held Manila, and uh, you'll move in there. And so this is like, a, he has no real authority to do that, uh, but he just kind of set in motion uh, America's conquest of the Philippines with this one telegram. So basically, once the, the, the you know what hits the fan, go ahead and sail into Manila Harbor and take it. Okay, uh, What's in Manila Harbor at the time? A Spanish fleet. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of set in motion. Of course, you fast forward again. Um, as the hostilities enter, the pre-dawn hours of the 1st of May of 1898, the American squadron of uh, vessels under Commodore Dewey enters Manila Bay, and, and, and this becomes one of the most one-sided, decisive naval victories in history. Uh, Dewey destroys the Spanish fleet, uh, the Spanish Pacific Squadron under Admiral uh, Montojo. Uh, sorry, my Spanish is not that good. But before noon, uh, they, they sink 12 Spanish antiquated warships, and they, they, you know, to the cost of about 381 Spanish lives, losing only one American life. And so they completely, they lose no American vessels. They sink the, nearly the entire Spanish fleet. 
And, uh, and that's it. It happens, you know, half a day. Uh, and I, you know, I won't even go in to try to break down the naval tactics, but basically, uh, you know, they, they basically came alongside uh, broadside. They just broadsided the Spanish ships until they just sank them. So now they get the next problem. Now we've defeated the Spanish uh, fleet. We've got uh, Aguinaldo, which has uh, been allowed to come on board uh, Commodore Dewey's vessel, flagship. Uh, and now we have the situation where uh, the, the main obstacle to uh, taking the Philippines, at least on the island of Luzon, is, is removed. But we don't have an army. So Aguinaldo is left. Uh, he's uh, dropped off uh, at the docks to resume his uh, revolution against the Spaniards. Uh, and so this is where uh, America's uh, empiricist um, days kind of enter. And there's, I would add that, uh, I would argue, once the war ends in 1913, uh, America's uh, empirical designs uh, kind of die. We kind of, we learn our lesson from this. And we, uh, once World War II happens and the race for land in Africa happens, we're not a part of that. Uh, and I think we just kind of learned our lesson from this. But so the next thing that happens is, hey, uh, we just won uh, uh, a nation, so now how do we govern it? How do we make this happen? So the problem is you have the Spanish who still control Manila, and you know what are we going to do with Aguinaldo and the insurrectionists? What are we going to do with that? Uh, and so the question uh, is really answered by President McKinley at the time. So he reluctant, he, and you know, McKinley has been reluctant this whole time to really go to war with, with Spain. He doesn't want to do that. Uh, reluctantly, he decides to do it. There's a lot of war hawks at the time that, that want to make this happen. So he makes it happen, uh, but he's cautious. He's very cautious. So um, now, so the first thing that happens is there's 13,000 men that are hastily assembled at the Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, under the command of General Merritt. Uh, Merritt was a, a, Civil War, a Civil War officer, Union, Union type. His, uh, one of his, uh, his two IC is one of his brigade, uh, one of his commanders is uh, Brigadier General uh, Elwell Otis. And so uh, Otis and uh, Merritt, they're, they're aged guys. They've been there, done that. Uh, as veterans of the Civil War, and uh, the so-called Indian campaigns of the 1870s. So this was uh, these guys are experienced, uh, in other words, with uh, counterinsurgency, right? The very end of World, of, uh, World War II, <laughs> the very end of the Civil War, the, the War of Northern Aggression, and then uh, westward expansion. You know, they've, they've got some uh, uh, expertise with uh, subduing, uh, you know, hostiles, if you will. So Merritt, uh, with his, his you know, force of 13,000 men, they depart San Francisco. You know, we're talking weeks, weeks and weeks back then to get there. They land in Manila. And so now you've got a U.S. Uh, ground pro, uh, presence on the ground there uh, outside the capital uh, with the Spanish. The Spanish, they went on with their uh, kind of a limited campaign to put down the uh, insurrectos. Uh, but then there's the question of, now what do we do? Uh, and so you have this uh, interesting thing that happens sometimes in history, 
and that is uh, in order to save face, uh, Merritt and the uh, the Spanish commander decide there will be a, a little bit of a skirmish, and then after some blood is drawn, uh, they will be allowed to uh, take uh, Fort Santiago in Manila and uh, you know end the war. Now all this is done without Aguinaldo, without the Philippine Filipinos, uh, you know. In on the on this uh, command and staff meeting, if you yeah, will, they, they, they're, weren't, they're, they weren't read in. Yeah, they're yeah. not read on what's going on. They're just kind of doing their thing. So the whole plan is just to kind of take the Philippines from the Spanish and just kind of keep the status quo. Right. And then we will bring with our three branches of government. You're going to love this. We'll put someone in charge. You know how this goes, right? Yeah. We we've done this a few times, <laughs> but this is kind of really this is really the first time we do this. Uh, this was really the first type of, I guess, Vietnam type of experience where we decided to do something like that. And, uh, you know, this was very unpopular at, back at home. You have a lot of people not happy with McKinley, not happy with administration doing this. Uh, but so it's like, hey, we now we got an overseas empire. Now what do we do with it? And so it's kind of the burden of victory. What do we do? Uh, now, at this point, I have... Uh, I just want to mention, uh, this is really an accidental guerrilla war. Uh, now, there's a, a term used by uh, David Kilcullen, who is a, a counterinsurgency uh, theorist and practitioner, uh, is, known, is a known expert in the field. He has coined that idea of accidental guerrilla. He actually has a book uh, entitled that. And the idea is, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, have the, uh, the tribes, the Pashtuns. They know, hey, uh, when somebody... Uh, some foreigner shows up, some uh, invaders. Hey, we're just going to go ahead and take to the take to the hill and go up Khalid, go up to the ambush site because the Russians are back, All right? And that's really what they said when we showed up in 2001 because they just thought, hey, we're just the next invaders, and uh, we didn't identify with them. And so you have basically, if you follow the uh, the logic, this is an accidental guerrilla war. It didn't need to happen, um, but we didn't think through, uh, you know, fully. What about Aconado? What about the insurrectionists? How can they have their their own uh, independent nation of the Philippines, which they wouldn't see until 1946, uh, following a lot of war, a lot of carnage, and so they're left on the sidelines. Uh, at this point, the Spaniards they get in their boats, they're gone, and now you've got the Americans and you've got the Filipinos. And now there's, uh, uh, you know, the tension is so, uh, it's so tense. You know, you could just uh, uh, hear a pin drop, what have you. And those, uh, they're facing each other off in those trench lines. Even when this attack on the Spaniards happen, happens, uh, the Filipinos are not allowed to join in the fight. And they're just kind of off on the sidelines. But they know something, uh, you know, stinks in, Den in Denmark, or in, uh, in Luzon. And uh, so it happens at this point, uh, Aguinaldo is really uh, sidelined. Uh, his other com commanders at 1902 shows up, uh, the Treaty of Paris. Uh, they, they decide the future of the Philippines, but the Filipino representatives who are there, they're not even invited to the talks. So yeah, you I mean, can see all kinds of it's, this is very, all kinds of feelings getting hurt. Yeah, here. this is sorted. This is seedy, yeah. uh, and so now you've got uh, you know now you got the new masters, 
So, and then what happens, but the encomiendo system of the landed gentry, that keeps going. Mm -hmm. And now you just got somebody else who's going to get, you know, get the money. The the, the next person's up on the feudal uh, pyramid. So what happens is not good. Uh, Immediately, Aguinaldo takes the hills, and now they're just going to fight the Americans who are now taking the place of the Spaniards. Um, So at this point, I just want to mention... Kind of go back for a second, uh, something we've talked about before, and it's part of uh, uh, really five laws of irregular warfare that we've introduced before, but and this is part of our, my argument, and then there's five laws of irregular warfare, if we could be so bold to say that, but uh, we use the acronym PLAIN, P-L-A-I-N, and the, the P is that it has to have a purpose. You have to have a political objective, a purpose, uh, in their regular warfare. Uh, for the insurgents, it's going to be a cause. Uh, for the counterinsurgents, it's going to be, hey, what does this place look like when the dust settles? What's the, what's the, uh, the end state? And, uh, you know, for all the mission creep that happened in the Philippine insurrection, we didn't have one. We didn't really have a plan. What is this place going to look like? There was no long-standing plan, and we just kind of uh, figured it out as we went along. Kind of like, uh, kind of like Vietnam, uh, and then you have the L. Uh, you know this as we as we look at irregular warfare. This is kind of an inversion of principles, uh, but really we're looking at legitimacy. So irregular warfare has two really big important parts, and that is legitimacy and influence. So legitimacy is we have to the people have to know that the government uh, that is in power has the the people's best interest in mind. They have to see that. And, of course, obviously you see uh, Aquinado and the Filipinos, they don't see that. They just see the U.S. just replacing uh, the Spaniards and, hey, just get back in the field and, and, and work, you. And, and that's really what you have. Uh, for the legitimacy uh, in this war, you're really on the side of the Filipinos uh, and the insurrectionists and Aquinado. Uh, and so they had a, a shadow government that they set up. Uh, this happens again and again in the, in the history of the Philippines. Yeah, I think he's still held in very high regard as and considered the first president, um, duly elected president yeah. of the Philippines, isn't he? Yeah, and and absolutely, uh, the the legitimacy is really on the side of the insurgents. Yeah, and then you have the adaptability. That's the A. Uh, now we do have this. This was our strong suit uh, in the American counterinsurgency uh, strategy that was employed. Um, and I'm saying this anachronistically, we didn't have counterinsurgency doctrine developed at this time. So I'm just kind of backhandedly look at the Philippine insurrections, calling it that. Right. At the time, they were just defeating insurgents. Uh, but the way they did it was highly adaptive. And we'll, we'll be able to go through that in the time we have. Uh, and then, of course, you have influence. Uh, influence is uh, you know, part of leadership. Uh, influence is uh, you know, part of everything that you do. Uh, obviously, uh, this was a harder, uh, you know, nut to crack. Uh, is gaining that influence over the people with some type of uh, communication, a narrative that would make sense, and that leads me into the end, which is the narrative. Now, narrative, uh, we actually cornered the market on that too. As we'll go in, we actually were able to communicate what we were doing to the populace, and that was one of the main reasons that the war stopped. We were able to do that. Uh, and, and as my argument will go, uh, if you don't have these five plane laws, 
you run the risk of uh, running a uh, having a hard time. Yeah, having a hard time, <laughs> and uh, and to be yeah. clueless. Right. Um, but yeah, having gone through that, uh, at this point, uh, our first commander on the ground is Merritt. I mean, he takes Manila. He he, uh, he turns the command over to Otis. He high fives. He's out of there. Whew. Right now, Otis is there. Otis is as, is as capable in some ways, uh, but uh, basically he's just looking at uh, you know decapitation strikes, doing sweeps, uh, just just clearing the highlands uh, of the insurrectionists. Not really thinking about uh, the population and and there are we gaining influence and legitimacy and and so it's it's very brutal. And so he's resorting to the tactics that he had developed fighting the Native Americans on the high plains, uh, and they were very brutal. Brutal. Now I do know a little bit um, as far as the Philippines is, is a little bit fragmented, anyway, as far as the various different uh, groups and yeah, very diverse and religions. Yeah. Um, so uh, just to ask the question: Were the Moros? Um, were were these various different factions, were they doing a good job of cooperating with one another um, and uh, giving the Americans a hard time? I mean, were they, st- were they still kind of doing their own things? I mean, were we, were we dealing with fragmented resistance or was it a well-greased uh, machine? Yeah, so that's, uh, uh, that's a good question. Really, it's a complex answer. Uh, the Moros were on Mindanao, so they're kind of on another sheet of music. Uh, but the main fighting was on Luzon and okay. Samar, as we'll talk about. But on Luzon, you have the Iaconos, uh, you have the Tagalogs, uh, you have these various tribes, and uh, Aquinano was actually able to uh, ally them together. And, okay. And, and, uh, and, but when we get to the Moros, that's later on with uh, Pershing, and that's really where the war just kind of drags on. Okay. But for the most part, yes. And in a and Philippines was highly complex. Different religions you got. Roman Catholicism was the main religion, but um, a lot of the uh, insurrectionist leaders uh, painted it with a bad picture because hey, they're like these guys brought in this system that's very oppressive, and so it wasn't all that popular uh, because sometimes the priests would uh, you know working for the Spanish, and right. you, so you had that. So that was a kind of a, a two edged sword. Later on, though, in the in World War II, that was used. It was yeah. very effective uh, for uh, you know vetting process to who would be working with the insurrectionists and stuff like that. Uh, but then uh, the Moros, of course, were were Muslim. Yep. And so you did have uh, you know a, a disparity in that. But yeah, the big point is Aguinaldo uh, was able to uh, uh, you know Un- unify, unify the, the various these factions. disparate uh, you know fighting. Fighting arms to make this happen. Yeah, uh, and then you have uh, the next big chapter uh, in this uh, uh, epic, right? Is Otis? Uh, he's really not gaining traction, right? And he's really not gaining the people. And he's just you know the metrics are as a body count, mm. right? But he really has no uh, strategy for how to make this happen. Uh, and so what you have is uh, his lying to McKinley that uh, things are going well. Uh, but what happens, uh, happens a lot in, in history is the press says, that's not happening. Yeah, I was, <laughs> looking, I was looking through some of the old uh, political cartoons and satire and things like that from the era. And obviously, um, 
McKinley was having a hard time selling this at back home. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of people that were kind of, you know, what what have we gotten ourselves into here? Exactly. So you have uh, you know words like uh, quagmire, yep. morass, you know that are that are being used in the news. Uh, and so uh, Otis, uh, you know, the president needs to do something. Uh, the reins are handed over to uh, Douglas MacArthur's father, Arthur MacArthur, who was a general. Uh, Arthur MacArthur was there at the time already. He already had his, uh, you know, he establishes a long-standing presence with the Filipino people. Uh, you know, Douglas MacArthur was actually born in the Philippines, raised there. So, you know, it was very, as a close bond. So when he says, you know, I shall return, you know, that's it's uh, emphatic. You know, it's yeah. very emotive. Uh, this also uh, uh, reminds us that there's a learning competition involved in a regular warfare. So it's, uh, you know, you all knowledge is either learned or discovered, Right, and so we, we kind of relearn these lessons, uh, and so what uh, MacArthur does is he goes back to what we learned already, fighting in the Civil War, uh, and putting down partisans, and and uh, something we articulated back then that helped us was called General Orders One Hundred. It was the so-called Lieber Code, uh, and I would argue that the uh, General Orders One Hundred is the 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 ground floor of, uh, you know, the Geneva Convention and the law of armed conflict and all those things. It's really just doing war um, in a, you know, in a nasty environment in a humane way, yeah. right? And that's really what... Uh, Introduce some civility. Yeah, he did. Introduce a civil act. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And uh, so his uh, 2IC was a guy named Chaffee. Uh, Adna Chaffee was, you know, named for the Chaffee light tank. Uh, he was also there, but so what Mark Arthur does, he says, "Hey, let's let's rethink the strategy, right? We're not getting anywhere. We're just we're piling up bodies. We're getting some good, you know. We're schwacking people. Yeah, there's but, no there's no way out. Yeah, yeah. this thing never ends. Uh, and so you know he's he's sending reports to McKinley, and uh, and so he wants to you know produce uh, an effect. So so one of the things he does is another amnesty, right? And that is a buyback program." Now this is this is done a lot through the history of the Philippines, um, you know, not by the arguably not by the Spanish, but um, he uses uh, the buyback program. Hey, you bring a you know a weapon, you know, you get paid for it, and then so normally this is you know just by using anyone like any duller can see this is going to mitigate the insert insurrection if you can cut down on the amount of weapons. Well, it doesn't have the desired effect as he wanted. Uh, in a four-month period, you know, he saw, uh, you know, 5% of the insurrectionists, what they considered 5% at the time, which was 5,000 uh, weapons. So he had 5,000 insurrections. You have a lot of insurrections at the time, hundreds of thousands. Uh, he got, uh, excuse me, out of the 5,000 insurrectionists, <laughs> he had uh, 140 rifles. So, and, and generally, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of times what happens is... You turn in your old crappy stuff. Yeah. You get cash for it. Yeah. And then you can buy, you know, fewer but more modern weapons on the black market. Yeah, and they, there was some of that going on too. Yeah. Uh, something I didn't mention is uh, something that Otis was doing too was also, uh, you know, uh, picked up from the Spaniards, and that was the water uh, cure. Uh, and they would, uh, you know, you had to, uh, they would pour water down your neck. 
and then you had the water torture where you'd put a cloth over somebody's face and just pour water on it. You waterboard them. And uh, this would, uh, you know, they could extract some measure of intel intelligence, but the idea is, uh, you know, the, the ill feeling amongst the people that this is how you're treating them, you know. Uh, and this was some of the stuff that was getting out in the news. So this was so, what MacArthur was working on is, hey, I got to work against this picture that's been painted about what we're doing. I got to win over these people. Yeah, he's, he's understanding the information operation. He's understanding the PSYOP. Yeah. So bringing in the, uh, the aspects of the, of, uh, the General Order 100 uh, was the first big uh, you know, movement, first big building block and having an effective counterinsurgency campaign against uh, uh, these Philippine insurrectionists. Uh, but so, so the idea is he put out, hey, no more pillaging, looting, torture. You know, we're, we're going we're gonna to put the kibosh on that, and we're going to utilize uh, these, uh, the Libra code to do that. Uh, and so the enemy metrics, uh, you know, backed it up. There was there was far less, uh, you know, uh, the, you know the the strikes were more selective, but generally you were kind of you you have a sense that the people got the idea. Hey, you know the you know they're not as uh, you know vampire like in their approach, and so you had this uh, what they call a carrot and a stick approach. To kind of doing things. So you have the carrot of, uh, you know, you just kind of envision a barn animal, you know, and then you've got a stick to kind yeah. of uh, bad donkey, right. you know, being, and being rewarded for, for good behavior and, and uh, suffering the consequences of bad behavior. Right. And so some of this was kind of working. You had um, uh, some of the metrics, you had six months uh, of doing this up in the 1900s of the year 1900, you had 17,000 surrender. Uh, yeah, that's, under, sig- that's significant. That is significant. Now, um, some of this is probably due to some fatigue as well. Yeah, you know they've, you been, go- a, they've been going at this for a while. Yeah, about a year and a half, and then so uh, that's the other thing with uh, counterinsurgency is you got to prepare for the long haul. Right. I mean, that's just a basic level understanding. Uh, now, some other factors here, political factors. Uh, President McKinley brings a guy named Taft. Uh, Taft is later going to be the president of the United States himself. He comes in to kind of help out, kind of look at the situation. The big thing is the land grievance. Right. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, you know, a thorn in the side of Philippines for a long time, all the way up until, uh, you know, the 50s. But Taft looked at this and he says, hey, look, we have uh, a disparity. You know, the people just want to taste. And uh, so you have these upper class, you got these lower class people, and so this is kind of one of the problems. He tries to he takes this to task to try to kind of unravel uh, the Gordian knot of a problem. Uh, and so in his uh, campaign, uh, you know, he tries to win them over. Um, and then uh, Chaffee is involved. Uh, so you have the idea of. Uh, uh, but before I leave, I, lo- I forget this forever, perhaps is that the land issue never really is solved. Right. There is um, a movement towards that, but essentially uh, the church owns uh, the, I mean, humongous, I mean, humongous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just the acreage. It's so big, it's humongous. Uh, the acreage uh, that they own uh, is, you know, well, uh, taken a, up in like your, your, your church functions. That's just amazing, though. 
What's the church doing? I mean, we're talking about the Catholic Church. I'm assuming. Yeah. What's the Catholic Church doing with all this with all this land? I mean, it's not for cathedrals, right? So that you're talking about uh, monastic uses. You're talking about in uh, uh, other are they, ways. Are they, are they cultivating uh, and profiting yeah. off of this? Yeah, vineyards. And wow. so you have some of the, the poshest land in Luzon by the uh, that's church property. Wow. Uh, and so what ends up happening is uh, a lot of that's confiscated. Uh, a lot of the gorillas uh, take that. Uh, but that situation is really never really fixed, uh, and not until uh, World War II, not essentially. Uh, and then you have um, really, to close this chapter and go into the next one, uh, you, you have you make a lot of uh, a movement forward, gaining the people, uh, and then you have decidedly less uh, kinetic stuff, and you have amnesty and other types of situations are brought in, other aspects of coin. So, uh, so he's doing. He's actually doing a good job working a counterinsurgency strategy prior to having a formal counterinsurgency strategy. Yeah, I mean, this guy's actually just putting his thinking cap on and trying to figure it out. Uh, how do we make some progress here? Right, and then the 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 big thing that happens. Uh, a couple of the things here. Uh, one is Aquinado is captured. Okay, he's captured uh, in an amazing way. Uh, you actually have uh, some army officers that dress like, uh, you know, scouts. Uh, they actually dress like they're, excuse me, you have a McCabe scouts uh, who pose as uh, bringing, uh, you know, they play a little bit of a drama here. They're bringing these American officers under guard, and they captured them, captured them right into Aguinaldo's camp. And uh, so they fall for it, and while they're kind of celebrating, they, uh, they kind of turn tables on them. And capture Aguinaldo with some, you know. So he's kind of taken out of the picture. The next guy that kind of steps up to the plate here, take over uh, leadership, is a guy named uh, Miguel Malvar. Malvar uh, is, uh, you know, he gains uh, quite a following and uh, he's able to, to pretty much keep the insurrection alive a lot longer than we had hoped. Uh, the uh, command also passed to the guy named uh, James Bell, Major General. Uh, type. Uh, and Bell actually takes the strategy a little bit further and he introduces what we call uh, resettlement or reconcentration. And uh, that's our some, often given, uh, you know, a bad uh, rep. Yeah, we remember that from, uh, well, some of us might remember that from uh, Vietnam. Yeah. Where they would move a lot of the uh, uh, locals into uh, more secure areas, places where you could stick him right next to an American base camp or whatever, uh, in in hopes of uh, denying access uh, from the Viet Cong and the commissars and what have you. Yeah, the uh, namely the Strategic Hamlet program. Right. Uh, you know, it was President Jim's uh, program. It failed, uh, but there was some successes with the uh, civilian irregular defense group type of. Uh, and this was a, a CIA SF program. And it just uh, it just didn't happen because of uh, you know Vietnam, but but that was happening here, uh, and uh, very effective. Bell's Bell used the General Orders Number One Hundred, uh, and he used uh, you know a degree of uh, uh, civility to the war, and then what he made is a series of uh, armed camps. You know they were like little villages, and everything outside of that was they just confiscated all the food. 
all the animals, uh, and all the all the food. So the theory, the, the, the theory here is, of course, the insurgency uh, relies on on the locals uh, for everything. Yeah. So if you remove their support, their logistics, uh, logistic support, um, their access to uh, more fighters, food, bullets, um, rest, um, medical treatment, everything that's required. If you could, if you remove that, then they have to go find it elsewhere. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so, so Bell, his big point here is there's there's no neutrality, yeah. right? It's either it's black and white, and so his idea is you have to separate the insurgent physically and psychologically from the affected populace. And if you don't, until you do that, you're never going to defeat right. the insurgency. Now they had a great cause, uh, but at this point we had a great strategy. Uh, and so through the series of these uh, encampments, he was able to basically hamstring uh, the, the Philippine insurrection. Uh, and so uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a metrics, uh, you know, Bell had about 10,000 men, and he laid out this operational design to, to stamp out what remained uh, under uh, you know, this last hurdle to creating the better state of the peace. And so you have... Uh, uh, Miguel Malvar is running around his bands, you know, squad size, platoon size elements. And uh, uh, for uh, General Bell's approach, uh, you know, he put out these circulars. So he had his arm camps, he put out these circulars, uh, and we have all these, and that's what's marvelous about it. Uh, he put out these circulars, he numbered them all, he put it out to all his guys. And then, um, so those guys that were committed to garrison duty, uh, they would, uh, instead of just uh, looking to you know, take out the insurgents, they were actually protecting the, pit, the populace, uh, which was a different approach. Uh, and so this, this won over the people who saw, hey, you know, they're not just uh, you know, indiscriminately, you know, uh, uh, you know, this violence. It's actually separating the uh, affected population from the insurgents and protecting them and providing food. And I would add, uh, the people would work and actually get paid. And so these little towns uh, in, in each of these zones of concentration, if you will, uh, the people, were, they could work. Uh, they, they actually had, uh, uh, they could go from a uh, zone of concentration to another with uh, a pass. And if you didn't have that, you know, then obviously you're going to get nabbed up. And this was able to, by using this strategy, he was able to kind of draw a line of demarcation uh, between uh, Malvar's men, his guerrillas, and just kind of starve them out. And, and that's really what they did is uh, the insurgents were reduced to uh, running, uh, you know, in the hills and eventually just ran out of uh, a way to recruit. They ran out of logistics, uh, and then they had no populace that they could influence. And uh, now, so the, as this was going on, there was also some bad stuff going on too, uh, and I would be remiss not to uh, mention that, and that was really with General Smith uh, down on the island of Samar. Uh, so uh, General Jacob Smith, he was sent to Samar, uh, and as he was there, uh there, unfortunately, there was uh, a Marine uh, garrison that was uh, annihilated. 
And in reply, uh, Smith ordered uh, that uh, the retaliation would be severe. Uh, he ordered uh, his, uh, the Marines to, uh, in, a, in a revenge-type manner, manner on Samar, to attack uh, any of the, uh, the males uh, old enough to carry a rifle uh, were to be you know, taken out. And so uh, that was kind of a uh, kind of a dark episode in that, and that's often mentioned about uh, General Smith's uh, Samar goings on. Uh, and so he basically gave this order to to Major uh, Waller's battalion. It's, so you have 315 Marines on Samar. Uh, they just had a Marine garrison annihilated, and he said, "I want no prisoners. I want you to kill and burn. And the more you kill and burn, the better it will please me." And so that was you have you have some different things going on. Not to badmouth the Marines here because you know they they did some great things up on Luzon, but in this episode it was not good. Uh, and so as the as the story goes, Major Waller asked uh, General Smith, uh, well, "How old?" And Smith said, 10 years." Wow. And so so there was a lot of killing, uh, something like twenty five hundred uh, Filipinos on the island of Samar. Were, were just massacred. Uh, of course, this hits the uh, New York Times, the New York yeah, Journal, yeah. Uh, and uh, this is not good. And so they're compared to, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, Willie Mammoths and, uh, you know, the, uh, not Willie Mammoths, but the just, just criminal aspects of that. Why did I even say Willie Mammoths? I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to figure it out. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe I just want to but, see you know, if everybody's this, paying attention. But, um, yeah, this, this entire... Um, Insurrection, if you will, um, had lots of atrocities. So, I mean, yeah. I know we're kind of like going over, talking about some of the um, policy decisions, some of the strategic decisions that were made, tactical decisions. But uh, throughout this thing, I mean, if you read about it, it's kind of, I mean, it was brutal. I mean, both sides were a uh, different time too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, there was, nothing, there was nothing really friendly going on here. Lots of atrocities on both sides. Yeah, but uh, absolutely. And, and when you're, you know, and when you're a marine and you see atrocities inflicted upon fellow marines and you know, yeah. fellow Americans, I mean, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. Absolutely. Uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, if you're back in uh, Luzon, if you're looking at a map here, uh, so at the the high watermark of uh, Bell's reconcentration resettlement, you have about three hundred thousand people that are living in these protected zones. And if you're not in these zones, you've got no food, you've got no uh, contact with the people, and so you're going to die in the vine. And that's what happened. Uh, and so the, there was, this uh, action was not without a historic precedent either because you had uh, you know, the British fighting the Boers in South Africa. Uh, Kitchener is using the same thing. And so they reconcentrated the people. Uh, now, there was uh, a, uh, a death toll to be uh, extolled from this. And you have uh, um, uh, thousands of people dying in there. You have uh, some famine. So, you know, war is hell. Uh, but this actually happens. Uh, this actually produces the de desired effect. Uh, Bell also has some uh, 6,000 Filipinos. They serve as Philippine uh, police. Uh, this is a, a newly constituted constabulary force. Uh, this will go on to be uh, a stable uh, 
uh, element in the Philippine history, uh, the police constabulary. This will be used, uh, um, and this kind of this reinforces the the security and the control uh, to root out uh, the sympathizers and and uh, to just really strangulate the insurrectionists. Uh, so as the uh, basically the insurrectionists are just based they're starved uh, into surrender. Uh, at the very end of it, you have uh, metrics wise about eleven thousand Filipinos they die in these re- reconcentration camps. So that's that's a lot. Uh, and then you have uh, uh, others die from disease, uh, you know, throughout the Philippines. Uh, but then in uh, uh, April, uh, I think April, May, uh, Malvar surrenders. This is uh, 1902, and this pretty much brings it into that uh, chapter. The really the big piece of uh, the, the war, uh, the Fen- the. Philippine insurrection. Now the war goes on until 1913 on the island of uh, 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 down with the Moros, Mindanao. Uh, but uh, and there's some brutal aspects to that too. But just kind of recap, uh, we'll look at a lot here. But as far as a, a political objective uh, of the war, uh, the there was a mission creep aspect to this. And so as we went on, we didn't really have a definitive objective. You know, what, what are we doing here? We, we're, you know, uh, America's uh, uh, not a new nation in 1898, but this is kind of our first overseas venture. And we, we went a whole nation, and we're like, okay, now what do we do with it? Uh, and over against that, we have uh, Aguinaldo. He's got, he's got a cause, you know, land for the landless. Uh, you know, uh, these are the new Spaniards. So we, we had to learn on that. Eventually, we got our act together, and we had a coherent strategy and a, a operational design under Bell uh, using MacArthur's uh, General Order 100 that gave it a moral fiber. We have, we, yeah, we have a long history with the Philippines, but um, and I would say for the most part, it's a, it's a very close relationship. Yeah. Um, I mean, we haven't... Yeah, there was some colonialism going on there for, for sure, and some imperialism, but for the most part, the Filipino... Uh, people, I would say, look favorably upon uh, upon Americans. Absolutely. So we you know we, we we've certainly done uh, some things right, and we certainly weren't the ugly American over there. Yeah, and that that uh, that's a good point because uh, World War II uh, helped us out a lot uh, in uh, the Philippines because of that, because, because of, that of that history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it could have went the other way. I think very easily. Yeah. Well, if you. If you take that same line of uh, thought in, in Vietnam, we didn't have a long history with them. So by no. the time we got there, when the French were on the ropes, uh, we hadn't been there before. Yeah, we probably looked a lot like the French. Yeah, and um, the, and exactly. In fact, uh, we were uh, we had a lot of accidental guerrillas in that. Yeah. Where, where otherwise, if they had known what's going on, they wouldn't have uh, joined the Viet Minh. But. Yeah, during World War II, I mean, the Filipinos um, just naturally uh, flocked to... Uh, the Americans, yeah, uh, during the Japanese occupation, which was which was which is a good thing, yeah. But I just um, want to I just want to highlight that uh, importance of General Order One Hundred, uh, given yeah. a, a moral fiber and a, kind of a a LOAC before the LOAC is out there right. uh, to what's what's going on. Yeah, I mean you're, you know. Yeah, you can kill you can kill a terrorist. You can you can kill an insurgent. Um, but you got to 
you got to remember that it's easy. It's easy to have a hundred right behind them. I mean, uh, if, if you're if if you if you get into I just if I kill enough of these people, I win. That mindset's never going to work. No, it's not. I mean, you're not you're not going to keep up with the with the population growth there. Um, so yeah, you definitely have to have some sort of moral high ground, something that people can relate to, um, justification for your cause. You see that throughout history. Um, I think Russia, to be honest with you, I think is suffering from that a little bit today. Even though they have a very large Absolutely. military, um, I think the Russian people are probably scratching their head wondering, why am I in eastern Ukraine again? Yeah. Um, whereas the Ukrainians, of course, are fighting for their own homeland. So it's, you know, you have to, you have to concern yourself with this. Um, I was just going to throw one thing out there. You, know, you always hear this term, Paul, where uh, counterinsurgency only works on an island. Hmm. And um, because this, just like what you were talking about, when you can deny the insurgent safe harbor, um, you win. Uh, now, the Japanese weren't able to do that to us during World War II, but uh, obviously we were able to, we were successful during uh, the Philippine insur- insurrection. Um, but what do, you, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, it, uh, you, could, uh, you could say it only works on an island, but there are uh, many you can, instances. Now, you can create an island. Yeah. Right? We can create an island. We have uh, oil spot method in Algeria that was very effective. Uh, uh, the, the we mentioned this. The Boers uh, were taken out really with uh, resettlement, re- reconcentration, and that of course is uh, you know uh, South Africa. So it's not an island. Uh, so coin does work in other places other than islands, but you do have to create an island effect. Yes, um, and that, that that leads us into so another big discussion, but. But you're absolutely right. The uh, on legitimacy, we kind of covered that because they have the moral high ground with uh, General Order 100. And I didn't mention this, but Aquinado, uh, really, in some sense, uh, he got in bed with the wealthy landowners, and he was really just kind of creating. He wanted to create the status uh, quo ante, kind of like, hey, just take the place of the Spaniards, and because yeah. he was uh, a well-to-do guy. Yeah. And so it was like, hey, I'll just replace them. So you had some class issues there. Yeah. Uh, but that was brought out in the wash, and people saw his true colors. Uh, and then the uh, adaptability. Uh, I love this uh, uh, this vignette because when you look at our uh, – we had mission creep in the Philippine insurrection, but uh, we eventually uh, had to adapt our tactics to suit the terrain and the people and – and we learned our lesson, and what we did is we looked at uh, our our influence, our experience in the Civil War, uh, the uh, wars of Western expansion, Mexican American War. We brought all that together and like, hey, this this works. Uh, and then also uh, with uh, as I mentioned, the British using the uh, resettlement. Uh, this was a new type of. Uh, well, not really new. Because strategy? It was a new strategy. We also used that, you know, uh, in a, uh, a sordid uh, 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 war we used with the, uh, the Native Americans on the Great Plains. We resettled them. Right, on reservations. So this, is, right. this is kind of an aspect of coin that's not very popular, but it does work. If it's done right. <laughs> it's in the th- Bible, too. Isn't it? Yeah. But the, the whole point is we were able to uh, reduce uh, their... Uh, arms we used kind of uh, an argument that Rand makes is uh, uh, victory has a thousand fathers. So this you know victory runs in packs. So we have a little bit of amnesty. 
Yeah. We got a little bit of kinetics. We got a little bit of pacification. Here it's not. Got, it's yeah. not a one size fit all. Um, yeah. Like you said, you have to be looking at all the various different aspects um, to victory, yeah. and and shutting down every little um, avenue that you have. Yeah. Um, and so we 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 were able to successfully do that in the Philippines. That really, to be honest with you, I mean that insurrection. Uh, we made short order of that. I mean, granted, it officially, I guess, didn't end until 1915, but... Yeah, 1913, yeah. Uh, or, I'm sorry, 1913, but um, really the majority of that was over much earlier than that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that just also uh, highlights how the Moros on Mindanao were just, you know... Pain in the butts, uh, weren't they? Yeah, they were, and they, uh, as Persian discovered, but they were just geographically and then also culturally just separated from the rest of the Philippines. So as you said, the Philippines are very diverse. Uh, just going on also, I did, we covered the PLA, and this is the eye of influence. Uh, they identify with the people by uh, div- uh, actually implementing the Philippine constabulary, so the Philippine police. And and so when these orders putting, were... Putting a local face on Yeah, it. they put a, a native face, a local face on what's going on inside these zones uh, that were, uh, you know, cleared... People could still work, and then they actually defended themselves. So this this uh, was recreated with a lot of success with a civilian regular defense group in Vietnam, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and that kind of gave a uh, – uh, people learned, hey, the you know, Americans are not the Spaniards, and, you know, this is a better state of the peace if we just kind of follow what they're saying. And they learned that. Want to get rid of insurgent? Give them a job. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, they undermine the cause uh, in some sense with the insurgents. This would, you know, uh, rear its ugly head again with the land for the landless, as we'll see later on when we have time to talk about the Hook Balahop Rebellion. Uh, but the other one's a narrative. Here's the end. And so uh, as we, we learn from history is uh, when you conduct coin, it, you know, it, it largely depends upon your knowledge of the people and the terrain, the human terrain, as well as the physical cr- terrain. Uh, and so we had to have a, a coherent knowledge, you know, uh, be knowledgeable about the people. Uh, and so one thing that helped uh, the winning strategy was really Bell's uh, circular, his circulars they put out. And he was able to inform the people, hey, this is what we're doing. And it's not just, you know, willy-nilly going around schwacking folks like, this is the program. This is what we're going to do. If you get on our side, it's on the side of life. And so the narrative Really, uh, it played. I mean, it, it worked out. It paid dividends, and the General Order 100 uh, was fantastic. Uh, I would argue through history uh, that that's really the ground floor of LOAC and and other parts of our laws. But when we're the the whole point is this, you know, we do counterinsurgency with the uh, with the standpoint that you know the people they are the land, so we can control the political space. But if we don't, you know, just a terrain, but we don't have the people, then we're not going to win. And that's what he did. Is he gained the people, and he gained, he, yeah. he won the war. You gained, you gained the people. You, you've won the land. Yep. All right, well, I think that wraps it up today. I think. But uh, anyway, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pine Lander Podcast. And uh, we, if you enjoy the content, we hope you'll check out the sponsors, uh, Blacksmith Publishing. Been serving the warrior class since 2013. Uh, we have great titles written by warriors for warriors uh, at blacksmithpublishing.com. If you're looking for some cool apparel, head on over to pinelanders1776.com. And the general store's got all kinds of neat stuff in there. 
And uh, thank you for supporting the American Gogi Project, uh, Building Tomorrow's Warriors Today. Until our next meeting, remember to keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. God bless Pineland. Thank <laughs> you.